This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our next speaker, Dan Geschwind from UCLA School of Medicine, could not make it, but again, we're lucky. We actually have his presentation captured, and it will play in absence of Daniel Geschwind, but you will hear him narrate. Hi, this is Dan Geschwind. And I'm going to talk with you today about our work on human brain evolution and psychiatric disease liability. But before I start, I really want to congratulate Ajit, Pascal, Rusty, and colleagues, not only for the development of this amazing institution and the meetings associated with it, but also just say how privileged I feel for being able to participate in, in several meetings over the years and how truly wonderful and unique this organization is. Before I get into the meat of my talk, I just want to thank those who have done most of the work. The work that I'm going to talk about today on evolution was led by Heijung Wan with other contributions from Luis de la Torre Ubieda and Jason Stein. But a lot of what we do involves teamwork and a, and a great group of postdoc students and technicians in the laboratory who are all listed here and shown in the picture. The basic framing of what I want to talk to you about today is based on the question whether psychiatric diseases, either as a whole or individually, are a consequence of factors that underlie aspects of human cognition that are distinct. We know that many aspects of human cognition and behavior, as well as brain structure, are highly heritable. They're also in, subject to environmental effects. So please don't get me wrong. I'm going to be talking about genetics but I'm not talking about genetic determinism. What's wonderful is that advances in understanding the genetic contributions to neuropsychiatric diseases now permit us to begin to understand how disease risk relates to other human phenotypes and brain evolution. And that's what I'm gonna focus on in my short talk today. Just to, again, provide another reference for framing, genes act during development with, along with the environment, leading to the cerebral structure and brain structure. I refer to structure not as a static structure, but dynamic, ranging from molecular all the way up to the gross anatomical. And this, in turn, is the organ that underlies behavior and cognitive function, and that you can see the two-way arrow, because cognitive function and behavior also impacts brain structure as we learn, as we grow, etc., the brain structure changes. But brain development and cognition, despite the environmental influences, are highly heritable. And because the genome is finite, we can use this fact to identify the genetic factors that lead and that underlie either susceptibility to certain conditions or any cognitive phenotype. So the heritability of major brain structures is very high, and the heritability of cognition and behavior are lower but still very significant IQ ranging from 0.5 to 0.7, um, language heritability, depending on what, what one looks at, is around 0.5, et cetera. Neuropsychiatric disorders are also highly heritable. So that what we have here are listed by lifetime prevalence from the top anxiety disorders to the bottom Tourette syndrome, schizophrenia, and autism. One can see that the heritabilities uh, with some confidence range from 40 to 80 percent. Again, this is as high as the heritability for cognitive functions and higher than, than uh, many. So the question is, 
although very heritable, what kinds of genetic variation underlie this heritability or underlie the non-heritable genetic components? To understand that, we have to think a little bit about where we arose from. Humans have grown very quickly from small ancestral populations so that we're all related to a pool, small pool of common ancestors 10,000 years ago. And from that, our gene pool has expanded, but we still share common variation. Most genetic is variation is common and arose more than 10,000 years ago. But this variation has been acted on by natural selection. So strong bad actors, um, things that would really affect fecundity, are, have been removed. And so common variation is going to have small effect sizes with regard to disease. Whereas rare variants or de novo new variants could have very large effects. And so if we look at frequency versus effect size, it's the large effect mutations that have the very large effect sizes that cause disease that are very low frequency in the population. And things at higher frequency, we identify using GWAS or genome-wide association studies, but these are small effect size. So you can either have a combination of many, many, many small effect alleles or one large effect allele just to dichotomize. Much risk is in between a combination of both. What one key question is why should common variation persist if it is deleterious or not adapted in some, adaptive in some manner? Why do variants that appear to diminish social behavior remain common in the population? So one way to begin to look at that is to ask, how does risk for autism relate to other factors? Could it be related to things that are under positive selection? And so one of the interesting observations more recently that's been validated is that autism is positively correlated at about 0.3 with um, educational attainment, which we think of as a good thing. That's a positive. The higher the educational attainment, uh, the more education somebody has. And autism risk is also strongly correlated with G. This is a meta-analysis of GWAS for G, which is a uh, major factor related to intelligence. One can see that schizophrenia, in contrast, and ADHD are negatively correlated with G. So again, both educational attainment and um, some measure of IQ or intellectual functioning is positively associated with autism risk. So is that under positive selection? No. As a matter of fact, it's the other way around. This is work from Decode in Iceland that shows that since 1910, educational attainment is under negative selection. Both the number of children, which is negatively correlated with educational attainment, and then the age at first child or the age at childbirth um, are positively correlated. In other words, older at first child or childbirth um, on average with higher educational attainment. And this makes sense, more education, later children, fewer children. So it's actually under negative selection. So this raises many questions, but also provides many opportunities. If we can identify overlapping and non-overlapping genetic components of these psychiatric disorders, we can then ask, what are the specific molecular, cellular, and brain circuit functions represented by these? And then we can ask, how do selection pressures act on these distinct aspects of disease risk or biology? I don't have answers for those, but that's the kind of set of questions that's driving our, our current aspect of this work. This third question, are there general factors that increase risk for psychiatric disorders? Uh, the answer is yes, and I'm just gonna provide some quick data on that that was recently published in collaborative work 
with the iPsych Consortium, which is a Danish population-based study of six major psychiatric disorders shown here, ADHD, affective disorder, anorexia, A, autism, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, and then the cross disorder, the XDX. And one can see on this graph of SNP heritability that the XDX is at least as high, if not higher, in terms of its common variant-based heritability than some of these actual disorders. In other words, there's strong heritability for things that provide risk or um, across for any disorder and that aren't specific to any disorder. And to show you that they're not specific, here are the top genome-wide association hits. And one can see in the blue that none of these, it, it, these aren't being driven by one disease simply. The odds ratios are, are kind of above one for all of the disorders for the first three and below one for this SNP that reduces risk for cross-disorder psychiatric impairment. So what this is telling us is that in addition to the specific risk for disease, there are factors that um, provide uh, general risk. And so we're interested in asking some more questions about this. For example, can we identify uh, biology? What does this mean? What is the, when do these act? And, and do they act in the brain? And the answer is yes. The genes that are implicated by the GWAS are expressed most highly at mid-gestation, at the peak of cortical neurogenesis and migration. And this is shown left is prenatal, right is postnatal gene expression, just shown in a different way. So this implicates the fetal period as really an essential period for the action of these genetic variants. And this has been supported in other work that we've done looking at other conditions, not just cross disorder, but individual conditions. Here we show even adult disorders like depression and depressive symptoms, um, schizophrenia, which is not an early onset disorder, and educational attainment, as well as intracranial volume, are all at least as strongly driven by um, regions of the genome that are active during fetal brain development as they are during adult. Now, how do we connect these genetic risks to specific genes? And since biology is driven by gene regulation that occurs at the cell type and tissue-specific level, we have to look at these specific time points during fetal development and its cerebral cortex. And we've done that using a variety of methods. But one of these chromosome confirmation actually tells you which gene is likely to be the target of the actual genetic variant. And so we've now made maps that map the gene regulatory elements onto their target genes during fetal brain development. So the one question we ask is what aspects of genetic and epigenetic regulation during fetal development have developed on the human lineage? And so I'm going to dichotomize this into two forms of variation. Genetic, which is represented by these areas called human accelerated regions or HARs. These are regions that are highly conserved in mammals but that have changed very fast between chimpanzees and humans, and they overlap strongly with developmental enhancers. And I, um, I have the reference below um, that's most recent, Capra et al. And then these human-gained enhancers, which are actually not DNA sequence, but epigenetic changes in chromatin structure and histone modification that shows that these enhancers are much more active in human brain. And this is, again, cartooned here. A har will have variants on, at the DNA level on, on, you know, that have arisen on the human lineage, whereas 
those human gained enhancers that are expressed in the fetal brain, most, most active during fetal brain development, will, have, will be more open or more active as shown here by this, by this uh, peak. And there are those that are more active in the adult brain will show a similar peak. So we can divide the human gained enhancers into those that are fetally active and those that are adult active. Now, some of this work was spurred on by really seminal work done by Chris Walsh's lab that showed that mutations in these HARs actually disrupt are related to autism and intellectual disability. And that's in this paper in Cell in 2016. We wanted to ask, not only are the HARs affected, but now that we have these regulatory maps, can we identify are the actual genes regulated by HARs in um, likely associated with autism, schizophrenia, intellectual disability? The first question we asked, though, was when and where are they expressed? Are these HARs or human-gained enhancers expressed in the cell types and in the regions that are responsible for human cortical expansion? And the answer is yes. Here we can see that the HARs and all of these classes of human-gained enhancers are highly enriched in the outer radioglia, which is a neurogenic zone that's expanded massively in non-human primates, as well as in endothelial cells, which shares some gene expression. We look in adult, we see, again, if we just focus on the HARs and the human-gained enhancer in fetal brain, we can see there is a, as well as the um, um, adult brain, these are lost enhancers, and I'm not gonna focus on them, but they're regions of the genome that have been lost. These elements are, open and the genes that they're regulating are more expressed in the supergranular layers, which are expanded in primates. So we can conclude from this that elements that are being selected on the human lineage converge on cerebral cortical expansion and gyrification. So we, we not only know now from a genetic and epigenetic perspective that these have changed on the human lineage, but they're changing in the cell types and anatomical regions that have already been implicated in human and primate brain expansion. So when we then look to ask about these elements and ask if various classes of risk genes, we were surprised to find that autism de novo loss of function genes are indeed enriched in HARS, that if, it's, if one looks at genes that are in the most constrained category, that is, are very unlikely to harbor mutations in humans, those are enriched in both human gain enhancers and HARS as well as CNVs that cause schizophrenia, the genes within them are enriched in HARS, in, are genes that are more likely to be regulated by HARS. And we see the same thing with genes involved in developmental delay broadly, which is intellectual disability and kind of fairly nonspecific. And one of the strongest signals is with just genes that are highly constrained. That is that highly, highly constrained genes whose protein sequences can't change very much, are actually paradoxically, or perhaps understandably, under the control of these regions that have, that have changed very greatly on the human lineage. Again, this fits with the King and Wilson hypothesis that it's regulatory regions, not the proteins themselves. So in summary, genes causing neurodevelopmental disorders, including autism and schizophrenia, are under control of human-specific regulatory elements and that aspects of psychiatric disease risk are related to human cortical expansion and human brain evolution. And this is just a start, and as, we, and as we begin to get more of a handle on common variation, we'll be able to look at that in much more detail. Thank you very much for your attention.
Well, uh, when this symposium was first being uh, planned, I said, sure, I'd be happy to talk about behavioral ecology and look at um, uh, mating systems, that sort of thing. And uh, then a couple of uh, months later, I received another email saying that I would be talking about behavior and ecology. And I immediately began to hyperventilate (laughs) because everything falls under behavior and ecology. Um, For example, bipedalism seems like the kind of thing you'd address through anatomy, physiology, genetics perhaps. But all that started with a behavior that was probably driven by an ecological shift. Uh, Standing to peer over the grass or wading in lake margins, uh, standing vertically to reduce exposure to the sun, uh, or picking low-hanging fruits. And of course, there's my inspiration for today, a few low-hanging fruit. After I calmed down, I realized that everything has this problem, all of the the domains. Uh, Everything's connected to everything else. As Tinbergen pointed out, to fully understand any trait, you need to know what causes it at the level of nerves, hormones, cellular mechanisms, uh, how it develops during the lifespan, the evolutionary history, and finally, its current utility or adaptive function. And this is where the action typically is for evolutionary behaviorists using what's called the phenotypic gambit. The assumption that we can look at the function, that is, how something influences reproductive success, without worrying too much about the other questions. And my goal today is to show that uh, while this is a very useful approach, it can cause some significant problems. So here's a list of some 70-plus human traits that we'd like to understand, uh, taken from Carter's Matrix of Comparative Anthropogeny. Uh, There's no way to do that in 14 minutes. Instead, I want to focus on uh, some broader issues, mainly having to do with behavior, though I'll touch lightly on ecology. (laughs) My underlying goal is is going to ask about the intersection of folk ideas of instinct with our understandings of behavior. Necessarily, this is going to be very superficial. Please bear with me. The term instinct is not very precise, but the term often suggests an underlying genetical basis. It would be a behavior that results in some fashion from selection. One common idea of how an instinct might uh, operate is that it's a gut feeling. Now, a lot of people uh, mock the president when he said that, but this is not at all uncommon for scientists to talk about uh, things in this terms as well. Perhaps it's a shorthand. Maybe it's not a shorthand. Because it turns out that bacteria living in our digestive system, our so-called gut microbiome, which is number seven on the ecology list on MOCA, uh, may in fact influence behavior. A number of bacteria produce either neurotransmitters, uh, including dopamine and serotonin, uh, or their precursors, such as tryptophan. And these can have effects on the brain either directly via the vagus nerve or indirectly by the systemic uh, increases in those precursors. In this uh, recent paper, the authors showed that lactobacillus ruteri can reverse social deficits that are in mice with autism-like symptoms. And I don't want to go into whether the models are good or not, but you get a behavioral change, a social behavioral change. Uh, This happens by stimulation of oxytocinergic systems in the brain and doesn't work if the vagus is cut. Exactly what the bacteria produce and how it affects the vagus isn't known. Finally, it's not known if there is a functional explanation at all let alone what it might be. The active agent in this might just be bacterial waste. Now that we're thinking in terms of what an evolved behavior might be, I'm going to look at a very problematic sort of behavior. 
Sexual coercion in humans is incredibly complex. Uh, Just defining it to everyone's satisfaction could take the rest of the day. For comparative purposes, behaviorists uh, use a definition given by Smuts and Smuts. The male use of force or its threat to increase the chances that a female will mate with the aggressor or decrease the chances she'll mate with a rival at some cost to the female. Among chimpanzees, there's almost no forced copulation, what we would call rape, but males regularly attack females outside a reproductive context, and it's been shown that the females, the attacked females, are later more likely to copulate with the attacker than with another male. Um, The interpretation is that the male is using violence to condition a female so that she'll not resist him. Sexual coercion happens in both humans and chimpanzees. What's funny about this? I didn't agree. Okay. Uh, It happens in both humans and chimpanzees. It's not been reported in any form in bonobos. Male gorillas don't physically coerce or attack females, but they do threaten them. And given that males are twice the size of the females and the females aren't stupid, that probably is functionally similar to chimpanzee attacks. Among orangutans, forced copulations are not at all uncommon. Outside the great apes, though, coercion of either sort is vanishingly rare in primates. The simplest way to interpret this if you're a biologist is through parsimony. Uh, A trait arose in an ancestral ape was secondarily lost in bonobos. But, and I can see I'm following on Tetsuro's footsteps here, Uh, Here's a pair of dolphin that Jeff Jacobson photographed cavorting next to his boat. Uh, This this looks great. This is a beautiful scene. If you look a little closer, though, note the uh, pink down there in the uh, lower right. That's a penis. This sexually excited male is leaping onto the blowhole of the other individual, uh, interrupting his or her breathing. Whatever happened subsequently happened underwater. But what has been observed, and this has been observed by multiple uh, observers in a couple of different species, uh, is fully consistent with sexual coercion of some kind. Now, I could have just talked about bottlenose dolphin, in which sexual coercion is well established, but I want to encourage work on other delphinids so we get a better comparative uh, handle on this. In any case, one interpretation could be that the sexual coercion trait, uh, quote-unquote, arose independently in the great apes and the delphinids. But another, and the one that I lean toward, is that there is no trait in any important biological sense. Uh, There's no trait in any important biological sense. The behaviors are just a consequence of learning in large-brained, long-lived animals. Bonobo males don't learn to do this because females uh, are cohesive and form alliances and are well able to defend themselves. Just focusing on the phenotype, the uh, current utility, risks us concluding that there is a trait there when perhaps there is not. Okay, I'm not going to make it through the list, establish that. Uh, I want to take a look at just an example here of uh, long-range transport of materials, such as this barge loaded with logs. The thing is, uh, Hugo here is carrying a twig to a termite mound that he can't see at the point when this uh, photograph was taken. And uh, he's, that's all the, the heavy-duty conceptual work. The rest of this uh, is just elaboration. <laughs> so if we eliminate all the, the cultural and uh, elaboration sort of things from this list, gets us down to just 46, of which nearly half can be glossed as prosocial. And there's a shortcut to our thinking about prosocial behavior, the domestication syndrome, and the idea that humans have self-domesticated ourselves. 
Darwin was onto this first. He noted that while some features shared by domesticated animals make sense, lowered aggression, uh, for example, others don't. Shortened faces, juvenile behavior in adults. Uh, and humans share some of these features, including increased social tolerance, peacefulness, tameness, about which I'll say more later. Current interest in the syndrome stems from work on the um, experimental domestication of silver foxes in Russia. If you're not familiar with that, you should check it out on Wikipedia. I'm not going to try to go through all this. Uh, don't worry about it. I just want to make sure that if you're interested in the evolution of human behavior, you have a look at some of these uh, papers and these concepts. The key point for today is that attempts to understand this domestication syndrome, the seemingly independent traits like floppy ears or reduced forebrain, using the phenotypic gambit, got nowhere for more than 100 years. But insights gained from the silver fox experiment led to a focus on proximate mechanisms that may explain the syndrome. In an important paper, Wilkins et al. suggests that the, uh, when tameness was favored by selection, what actually got changed was the embryonic development of the neural crest. And uh, it, that has a knock-on effect on a wide variety of tissues that are uh, derived from or influenced by neural crest cells. Maybe the idea is correct, maybe not. Beautiful stories have been slain by ugly facts before. Uh, but taken together, these two ideas, that there's a domestication syndrome uh, of behavioral, anatomical, physiological traits in which only some have been selected for, and that humans have self-domesticated uh, ourselves, offer a new way to look at the origins of our prosociality. Having talked about prosociality, a little U-turn. We exhibit a lot of prosocial behaviors, but we also uh, can do some extraordinarily nasty things. And so can chimpanzees. Mike Wilson and his colleagues have reviewed lethal aggression in uh, chimpanzees, found that it was observed or suspected in 15 out of 18 studied communities. Most is inter-community, likened to warfare in humans, uh, but also happens within communities. And the pattern of who kills whom, where, and when supports adaptive explanations. Uh, killers tend to gain reproductive benefits in terms of territory, food, and mates. The fact that humans and chimpanzees exhibit similarities in this suggests a shared evolutionary history. I emphasize that in chimpanzees, the probability of lethal aggression varies with ecological and demographic circumstances. They're no more compelled to go out and kill than we in this room are. And hopefully that's not much. There's long been a debate as to whether human nature is aggressive or peaceful. Recently, Richard Rangham uh, has argued for a resolution to the debate on the grounds that from a biological perspective, uh, from a biological perspective, aggression is not in fact a single trait, but has two forms that are distinct at behavioral, hormonal, and neurological uh, levels. The notion that proactive and reactive aggression offer, differ in important ways is not new. Rang has pulled these together, uh, the, the proximate data together, uh, in a way that can clarify the distinction um, uh, between the, the, uh, the, patterns, sorry, the patterns among humans, chimpanzees, and bonobos. It turns out that we exhibit far less reactive aggression than the apes. We are highly prosocial. We're tame, perhaps as a result of self-domestication. But we share with chimpanzees a propensity for proactive aggression, including, perhaps, uh, proactively killing individuals who showed excessive reactive aggression, using proactive aggression to foster self-domestication. Well, there's nothing obligate 
about chimpanzee lethal aggression, there's a tendency to regard it as natural in the sense of presented with competing neighbors. Naturally, that's what they do. And we end with this phenotypic gamut. We don't look much beyond that functional level to try to understand precisely what it is we share with chimpanzees that makes both of us respond to uh, analogous situations and similar aggressive strategies. Is there a gut feeling to attack? What are the proximate factors involved? Yukimaru Sugiyama studied this small, isolated group of chimpanzees in Guinea uh, for many years, and uh, they're quite isolated. He was very surprised in the early days when a strange male chimpanzee wandered in and joined his uh, study group, spent 20 days in the group, apparently, based on DNA testing, fathered an infant, and then left. This is something that doesn't happen with chimps. Sugiyama's interpretation is that because this group is isolated, it had no negative history with uh, other groups, and they didn't grow up knowing that you couldn't trust strange males. So they were okay with it. They were, able to, they were able to interact peacefully. Now, I should note that a lot of primatologists, this is so unlike what's been seen elsewhere, a lot of primatologists uh, either ignore or dismiss this account, but I think it holds a key to that question about the proximate factors behind lethal conflict. In one version of the story of King Arthur, he and his army met the usurper Sir Mordred at Salisbury Plain, and they began to negotiate a peace. While Arthur and Mordred were talking, a poisonous adder, down here in the lower left, lower right, I guess, uh, a poisonous adder snake crawled from under a rock near one of Mordred's uh, guards. The guard reflexively drew his sword, killed the snake. Arthur's men misinterpreted the gesture, and the battle went on. Arthur and Mordred died. So it goes. The thing is, given the excitability of chimpanzees and tensions that are inevitable during contact with unfamiliar individuals, <laughs> sooner or later, as if you didn't know, uh, sooner or later at any given site, there's bound to be uh, an incident of some kind. The next time the groups meet, that incident is of a historical precedent. You can easily see how this uh, uh, hostile intergroup relationships that foster adaptive lethal aggression virtually wherever chimpanzees have been studied, could, repeat could, stem causally as much from historical events as from any instinct. I'm not suggesting lethal aggression is not functionally adaptive or that it's not natural in some sense, but that precisely what is meant by natural is a very complicated thing, and all four of Tinbergen's questions need to be answered before we can claim to understand it. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Joe Henrich, who unfortunately couldn't join us. I'm happy to say that he was able to record his talk. It's a very important talk on a second mode of inheritance that doesn't involve DNA, but culture, and it interacts with the first mode of inheritance. So here's Joe Henrich from Harvard University on cultural evolution. Hi, everyone. I'm Joe Henrich. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you today. But in the next 14 minutes, I'll be giving you an introduction to recent developments in our understanding of cultural evolution and dual inheritance theory with an eye to how this informs our understanding of human evolution. Our point of entry for understanding cultural evolution and our species dual inheritance is to recognize that humans are a cultural species. More than any other species, we're dependent for our very survival 
on acquiring this large body of information that is accumulated non-genetically over generations. We use this to find food, to process it, to make tools necessary for getting the food, for building shelters, for medicines, for even features of childbirth that other species do automatically. Humans need uh, specialized cultural information. So culture is central to understanding humans, and we can't survive without it, despite having these large brains that have evolved surviving as hunter-gatherers for so long. Now to approach this, we need to think about our adaptations for cultural learning as genetically evolved adaptations. Natural selection has shaped our minds to make us better cultural learners. This, I think, is a crucial intellectual move in history, these ideas, because making this move dissolves the intellectually destructive dichotomy between genes and culture, and it allows us to make all cultural evolution a type of evolutionary explanation, to insert them under the Darwinian umbrella, and to use the full power of evolutionary theory to think about our cultural capacities as genetic adaptations. Now, the way to build an understanding of cultural evolution and dual inheritance is to begin by asking the question, how might natural selection have shaped our cognition to best exploit the socially available information that's in the minds and behaviors of the other members of our social group? How do we filter that wash of social information? And there's a large body of formal evolutionary mathematical theory that asks the question, when should we rely on pre-programmed responses innate decision-making heuristics, individual learning and experience, or cultural learning or learning from others. And to give you a sense of how we think about this, you can imagine you're entering a novel environment. Perhaps you're a young individual just growing up in the group, learning to make your way in the world, or perhaps you're a migrant from a different environment. And you have to solve a basic task. How do you figure out what to eat in this environment? Now, you might use individual innate learning cues um, sampling a lot of foods, trying to figure out what to eat. This would allow you to construct a good diet over time, but it would be costly because you'd have to sample all these foods. You'd have to have some good detoxifying processes. You might make yourself a little bit sick sometimes. Um, so that's potentially costly. The cultural learning solution to this problem is to eat what other people eat. And you can even sharpen that up a bit by focusing on the food choices of older, healthier, and more successful people. You don't know that this will give you the best possible diet in this environment, but you do know that it will give you a diet that can allow you to become older, healthier, and successful. Now, researchers in approaching this have uh, identified a number of different classes of mechanisms. I'll mention two of them. The first is model-based mechanisms, and that's rooted on who you're trying to learn from. So that's relevant to the last thing I said about older, healthier, and more successful people learning to eat from them. So that's about the who. I'll say more about that in a minute. The other one are content-based mechanisms. So selection seems to have favored some inclination to pay attention to certain domains. So people are particularly interested in food, you know that from all the cooking shows. Fire, there seems to be a period during middle childhood when children become particularly interested in fire. Artifacts, we seem to approach them in, a certain way, in certain ways and, and make certain assumptions about what one needs to know about artifacts. Social norms, we're inclined to learn social rules. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. We focus on social groups and we try to learn things about whole categories of people. And living kinds. We seem to have some specialized cognition for dividing up the natural world. And in fact, we focus on certain kinds of information. So children readily acquire and remember information about the dangerousness of different species. 
to give you a sense of how researchers have approached this, let me talk about model-based selective cultural learning. So here the idea is to build a theory to um, allow us to investigate the kinds of cues learners use to figure out who in their social environment to pay attention to. Some obvious ones are pay attention to the more skilled or competent individual. So if you're in a hunting and gathering band, you want to look at the best archer if you want to become a good hunter someday, or the, the person who makes the best snares. Um, a way of aggregating this is to look at the most successful people, so who, bring, who brings back the most prey consistently. A way to get to that quickly could be to use prestige cues. So rather than aggregating who brings back the most prey most frequently, you can look at who other people pay attention to. Who do they imitate? Who do they defer to in conversation about hunting? So these are skill, success, and prestige biases, all of which have been shown not only in adults, but in young children, and in some ways, things like reliability and competence have been shown in babies. Young children, there's, there's good evidence of prestige bias. Other cues could be something like age, which allows you to very quickly zoom in on uh, individuals likely to have useful information by using age as a proxy. Younger children copy older children, and only certain people get to be old. So especially in small-scale societies, that can be a cue. Self-similarity cues can help individuals zero in on those most likely to have information useful to your future roles in life. Research on social learning has shown that these cues, in general, not each one, are operative across a wide range of domains. So people use social learning to acquire food preferences, to pick mates, to determine which technologies they're going to adopt, economic strategies, suicide, reputational information is transmitted culturally, and what goes into a reputation in particular. Social motivations like fairness and punishment are also well established to be culturally transmitted. These biases and inclinations uh, reliably develop. We have uh, cross-cultural evidence, including some from small-scale societies, although we could use a lot more of detailed experimental evidence. But they develop early, they're automatic, and they're often unconscious. So this has the look of a cognitive adaptation. The next step in this process is to think about cultural evolution. So we've used the logic of natural selection to get us an understanding of the psychological mechanisms which allow us to acquire cultural learning. So next you can build mathematical models which describe social processes of interaction between people, some learning and some payoffs, some social interaction that help us explain aspects of religion, help us explain why some aspects of religion seem to be universally shared, and why we have this historical trajectory in beliefs in, say, big moralizing gods or the, these large doctrinal rituals. It can help us understand why technologies can become so sophisticated and why larger and more integrated societies tend to produce faster adaptive rates of cumulative cultural evolution, leading to fancier technologies and larger technical repertoires. It, ex it can explain why languages are so variable. Similarly, large societies have uh, more words, for example, um, particular kinds of grammatical systems. On the next slide, I'll discuss social norms and cooperation a bit more, and this approach can help us understand why ethnic groups seem to be so widespread in the world, and what's the nature of our ethnic psychology. Which brings us to the large pink arrow, which is reminding us that these cultural products, having operated over tens or even hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, have fed back to shape our genetic evolution, so we're a product of this gene culture co-evolution. From this broad range of topics on cultural evolution, I've picked out just one, the evolution of cooperation, or what Pete Richardson calls human ultrasociality.
Now, there's been a great deal of work on human cooperation showing the role of kinship and reciprocity. But in addition to this, efforts to understand large-scale cooperation have shown the centrality of social norms, and subsequent investigations to better understand kinship and reciprocity has shown that even in that domain, or even where those mechanisms are involved, social norms are crucial. There's now a large body of psychological work showing that um, based on humans from diverse societies, that humans culturally learn norms. Social norms seem to be a universal. When humans acquire norms, they acquire internalized motivations. They automatically infer expectations of punishment or some kind of sanctioning based on reputations. And they acquire standards for judging others, all by simple observation. So it seems that humans have some kind of norm psychology. Social norms are stable because anybody who acts faces a threat of punishment by others, and so that keeps the whole group in line. This is why things like economic development, other kinds of social change are so hard. One of the interesting and emerging areas is what are the different mechanisms that maintain norms across societies? It had been assumed that the debate was about one kind of mechanism, but it turns out that cultural evolution has figured out lots of ways to maintain social norms. So these vary both across societies and even in different domains within the society. One of the important areas moving forward is considering how the emergence of social norms through cultural evolution has shaped our species' genetic evolution and our sociality. So one idea is that the threat of reputational damage and other kinds of costly punishment to norm violators has initiated a process of self-domestication. So this suggests that there's a syndrome that we share with other species like domesticated dogs, um, whereby selection favors certain genes and their downstream hormonal and psychological effects that create a domestication-like effect. We have many of these, but not all of these when you compare us with other species. One of the key elements is this is what Richard Rangham calls reduced reactive aggression, a kind of general docility. This would also favor the kind of norm psychology I discussed on the previous slide, this readiness to acquire and internalize social rules. It may even lead to pro-social biases, uh, these biases that we get to acquiring pro-social norms, which would have resulted because of the effects of intergroup competition, favoring more group beneficial norms. Really complex tools and technologies over time. So that's the crossing of the Rubicon. You get some cultural evolution going. Culture begins to become a semi-independent inheritance system alongside genetic evolution. Early cultural evolution may have produced things like stone tools for cutting and processing food. Fire and cooking may have created a kind of externalized digestion, which weakened the selection pressures, allowing our stomachs to shrink, um, changing other aspects of our physiology. This would have freed up more energy to build larger brains, giving us greater dexterity uh, for using tools and making tools. This then would have created a greater selection pressure for brains able to acquire, organize, store, and retransmit cultural information, because that's the name of the game. Cultural evolution then could have produced more knowledge about um, throwing techniques, uh, about uh, how to find tubers, about how to make water containers. Water containers would have opened the door for long distance running, which would have created genetic selection pressures for our springy arches, our long legs. Um, Eventually, we might have gotten shortened colons, having to do with the fire and cooking I mentioned, and even larger brains, because now there's this growing body of valuable behavioral information that's only available if you're a good cultural learner, and you've got to acquire it and store it, and eventually retransmit it. You get uh, 
cold weather clothing. Uh, better tools allow us to have thinner bones and weaker muscles because we're relying more on technology. Things like resins and other kinds of projectiles can emerge. And then eventually a cognition that allows us to acquire and store all this knowledge about different kinds of plants and animals because we're now in the cognitive niche or the cultural niche. Uh, and minds that are better able to acquire information about artifacts. Uh, and eventually this can affect human life history, giving us an extended juvenile period, a longer post-reproductive period, because as you extend life, older individuals have an opportunity to retransmit back to younger generations this large body of information they've accumulated over time. All right, that's it. Um, if you wanted to learn more about some of the ideas I presented here, you can have a look at my book, The Secret of Our Success. Our next speaker, uh, Bill Kimball, couldn't make it, but we, he sent a video, and so I'll ask Kent to show you the video. He'll keep to his time more easily this way. Good afternoon, everyone. Sorry I can't be with you this weekend, but I'm pleased to be able to talk to you about paleoanthropology, specifically what we know, what we think we know, and what we've yet to fully understand about human evolution from the point of view of the fossil record. Obviously, given the time constraint, I can't be comprehensive, but I'll try to be general rather than highly specific. I'll identify a few obstacles along the way and end with a short prescription for overcoming them. Perhaps the one thing we're most sure of about human origins doesn't actually come from the fossil record, and that is that chimpanzees and humans are more closely related to one another than either is to gorillas and other primates. This insight, of course, comes from the molecular evidence but is a central backdrop to any interpretation of the hominin fossil record. We're fairly sure that the human-chimp divergence occurred in the late Miocene, but that date has moved back some due to recent work on the slowdown of the molecular clock within hominoids and genome-wide analysis of variation and substitution rates. These dates are consistent with the known fossil record of early hominins. But nothing in the molecular record can give us the chronicle of events. What happened? when, where, and why, along the path from the last common ancestor to modern humans. For this, we need strategically programmed fieldwork and a well-sampled, precisely calibrated fossil record. Here, I've added to the statement of relationships two fossil taxa, Artipithecus and Australopithecus, that contribute critical parts of the chronicle. Now, I'm pretty confident in the basal position of Artipithecus relative to Australopithecus and Homo, though I recognize some hesitation on this point by some in our field. And the position of Australopithecus as a close relative of humans hasn't been seriously debated since the mid-1950s. Currently, Artipithecus tells us that a trio of characters, part-time bipedality, a broad, short cranial base with a centrally located frame and magnum, and small non-honing canine teeth are foundational specializations of the hominin clade. From the Artipithecus perspective, Australopithecus appears to have undergone a radical makeover with a number of features such as lithic technology, a significantly enlarged brain, and an expanded dietary niche that we've historically associated with the Homo lineage. In my judgment though, the adaptive transition from Australopithecus to Homo is modest by comparison to that between Artipithecus and Australopithecus. Now, it's become fashionable to attribute all of these changes and more 
speciations, extinctions, net changes in taxonomic diversity, the appearance of biological as well as technological innovations, to high amplitude variation in global climatic cycles during the Pliocene and Pleistocene, within a strong trend towards cooler, drier conditions, as read from paleoclimate proxies in deep sea cores. But early hominins weren't adapting to climate change. They responded to changes in local environmental conditions in the interior of continents, where habitats were variably buffered against external influences by tectonic and other local to regional scale forces to a degree we're just beginning to comprehend. The problem is basic. We do not have a full understanding of how large-scale climate change mediated shifts and patterns of early hominin diversity, adaptation and geographic distribution on regional and local scales across deep time. And we need to have this understanding if we're to make progress in answering any of these key questions. I think the obstacles to solving this problem lie in three broad areas. Problems of diversity, problems of sampling, and problems of scale. None of these is a particularly new problem, but they are persistent. One of the pivotal climatic episodes occurred around 2.6 million years ago with an increase in high amplitude climatic shifts within a global cooling trend. A popular interpretation of the hominin fossil record suggests that there was a notable increase in species diversity as a response to the trend. And indeed, according to a high species diversity scenario shown here, there were perhaps eight species that originated within the half million year interval following the onset of the cooling trend. However, note that the time period just prior to 2.5 million years is very sparsely populated by hominins compared to the periods on either side. There is really only one well-sampled species from this period, A. africanus of southern Africa. East Africa has been recalcitrant, despite a lot of teams looking. And so we really don't know if the sudden diversity after 2.5 million is real or is merely an artifact of the gap in the record. But another challenge is that paleoanthropologists are not in broad agreement on the number of species that existed at particular periods of time. Take, for example, the 3.5 to 3 million year period on the other side of the gap. The high diversity scenario shows five to six separate species in this period. Some paleoanthropologists, though, see no more than two on the evaluation of the very same evidence. Now, it's been suggested that this debate is analogous to asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Who cares how many species existed in the fossil record? But to the contrary, if the diversity before 2.5 million was similar to that after 2.5 million, then it would be difficult to argue that climate change was especially important in generating increased diversity on the heels of global cooling event. So figuring out ancient diversity does matter to the kinds of questions we ask. Part of the problem is that not everyone uses the same approach or methods in their evaluation of the fossils. I'm a big fan of George Gaylord Simpson's scheme for inferring the existence of fossil species. We start with an assemblage of collected fossils, our sample, which I must add, especially for the older part of the record, is almost always time averaged on the scale of hundreds to tens of thousands of years even in well-dated contexts. So expecting our sample to reflect a single population on a single landscape or ecological circumstance is usually not reasonable. But from the sample, we need next to infer something about the parameters of the population 
from which the sample was drawn. Here, we need to take into account the possibility of change over time and geographic variation, among other factors. This is a critical step. It distinguishes a truly evolutionary approach from pre-evolutionary typology, but it's a step that is too often neglected. And then, depending on which species concept we adopt, biological, evolutionary, or phylogenetic, we might make the inference that our sample represents a population deserving to become a formally named twig on the tree of life, a species. Now this is a deliberate simplification to be sure, but the point I want to make is that too often the intermediate step, the most difficult one for paleoanthropology, is skipped, leading to the naming of species based on very minor morphological deviations from other previously recognized species. I estimate that if Simpson's formula were rigorously applied to the hominin fossil record, perhaps 20 to 25 percent of the currently named species would lose their identities as independent twigs on the tree of life. And some of my colleagues would argue that I'm still not being conservative enough. Now I want to say a few words about another major obstacle, one that does not have to do with our handling of the evidence per se, but instead concerns the disjunction between the scale of the questions we ask and the scale of the evidence we use to attempt to answer them. And here I want to acknowledge Kay Berensmeyer, the National Museum of Natural History, whose important work on this subject deserves much better treatment than what I can offer in the next few minutes. Here are plotted the spatiotemporal realms of some of the major questions we ask about the hominid fossil record, ranging from the truly global scale, on the order of hundreds of thousands to millions of years of time, to similarly large spatial scales down to what we might call local or ecological scale questions concerning population responses to environmental change. Many of the phenomena of human evolution we wish to explain are located on the ecological scale, speciation, population dispersals, origins of adaptations, etc. Accordingly, it would be extremely helpful if at least some of the evidence from the fossil record aligned with those questions. Unfortunately, for the bulk of the record, that is not the case. On the ecological scale in which many of our most interesting questions reside, we're usually shortchanged when it comes to the data. We are squeezed between, on the one hand, the spatially narrow window afforded by individual localities monitored over relatively short time spans, snapshots really, and, on the other hand, faunal assemblages that are almost always temporally mixed across landscapes aggregating individuals from different biological populations and ecological conditions. Well, this sure sounds like a gloomy prospect for paleoanthropology. But there are exceptional cases, like my colleague Curtis Marion's excavations in South Africa, where one of his cave sites preserves a continuous, exquisitely detailed, virtually landscape-scale paleoclimatic and archaeological record of Middle Stone Age humans in a coastal marine setting between around 90 and 50,000 years ago. The sequence includes traces of the mammoth Toba volcanic eruption and presents a rare opportunity to study how early humans responded to an environmental crisis in ecological time. But this is, as I say, an unusual circumstance. So where should we go from here? I offer a short list of agenda items that by no means exhausts the list of important tasks for the next generation of paleoanthropologists. It's trite to say, but we need more evidence from the past. 
but we need to be strategic in where we invest precious funding resources to maximize the value of new information from fresh paleontological and archaeological discoveries. I have my own favorite gap in the African fossil record between three and two million years ago, but there are others equally worthy of time and resources, like the entire Pleistocene of Central Asia, for example. I'm going to sound awfully old-fashioned here, but students in human origin science need more rigorous training in the basic principles of zoological systematics. Systematics is the bridge between the field and the laboratory, and I think paleoanthropology as a branch of the natural sciences will suffer by ignoring it. A major step forward would be greater cooperation and collaboration between field research teams on questions of regional or even continental scope. The tradition of siloed field projects working in complete isolation from one another, even when separated by only a few kilometers, makes no sense given the need for broadly integrative, scaled-up approaches to the key questions about our past. And related to this last point, we need fresh approaches to field and analytical research that explicitly address the disjunction between the scales of our research questions and the evidence we extract from the earth. To finish, I'll cite one recent example of this approach. The hominin sites in Paleo Lakes drilling project, established in the late 2000s, consists of more than 100 scientists from 11 countries who are working together to drill, analyze, and interpret long cores from East African Rift Valley Paleo Lake beds proximate to early hominin sites. The goal of this work is to create a continuous high-resolution paleoclimate link between the global-scale data from deep sea cores and the record of hominin evolution retrieved from local sedimentary sequences in the Rift Valley. This is important work and a model for how large integrated projects can move paleoanthropology forward. With that, I thank you for your attention. Again, I'm sorry I couldn't be with you, but I hope this gives you some food for thought as CARTA charts its next 10 years. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.